0: Hello and welcome to Imagine That, a podcast for astrology and archetypes. Welcome to the first episode of Imagine That, a podcast for astrology and archetypes. I'm your host, Sean Nygaard. What's in store for this first episode, the debut, the premiere? Well, first, I'm going to introduce myself and say a little bit about who I am. And then I'll introduce the podcast and what you can expect. And then we'll move into the topic of today's episode, which I'm calling The Old Man and the Sea Goat, which will be about Pluto in late degrees of Capricorn. After that, we'll peer ahead to just a little bit of the astrology coming up, and then we'll end with one of my favorite topics, movies and archetypes. There's a lot in store, so let's get going. So first off, who am I? Like I said, my name is Sean Nygard. I'm an astrologer based in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and you can find me on the web at imagineastrology.com. I'm a tutor for MISPA, the Mercury Internet School of Psychological Astrology, based in London and run by John Green. I've spoken at a number of the astrology conferences such as the Conference of the Astrological Association of Great Britain, the NCGR Conference, UAC, SOTA, and NORWAC. I've spoken at the Minnesota Young Association, and I've presented for a number of different astrology organizations around the world. I'm also a writer. I've been published in the Well-Being Astrology Guide in Australia... And you can find a number of my articles in the Mountain Astrologer. And I'm a graduate of the CMED Institute in Chicago, where I studied archetypes and symbolism with Carolyn Mace. That's a little bit of my astrology background. I've also all of my life been a lover of popular culture. When I was a kid, I would go into downtown Minneapolis every week to Shinders, the newsstand, and I would buy Billboard Magazine. I'd take it home and I would track the hot 100 songs of the week. And I never missed an episode of American Top 40 with Casey Kasem. I remember discovering that show on the radio like it was yesterday. They were playing all the great songs, counting them down. And you can imagine my surprise when they got to number one, the first number one song I was ever going to hear, and I had no clue what it was. Hadn't heard it before. It was Betty Davis Eyes by Kim Carnes, a song I, of course, grew to love. I've listened to pop music all my life, in addition to other kinds of music. When I started buying albums, or more accurately, cassettes, I would read the credits. I'd learn who wrote what songs, who wrote the lyrics, who wrote the music, who wrote music and lyrics, who produced the album. I would memorize everything. And this love of music eventually led me to study music production, which in a strange turn of events is actually how I became an astrologer. But that's a story for another time. Other inspirations include Carl Jung, the founder of analytical psychology, and James Hillman, the Jungian who founded archetypal psychology. I love literature, so I love Toni Morrison. I love reading. When I was a kid and I read science fiction and fantasy, my favorite book of all time became Weave World by Clive Barker. Subtitled, An Epic Adventure of the Imagination About a World Inside of a Carpet. I love RuPaul. And when it comes to music, in case you're wondering, my first ever favorite song, and my favorite song of all time, is Gloria by Laura Branigan. So next up, why imagine that? Why would I call a podcast about astrology and archetypes? Imagine that. There are many ways to address this topic, but the backdrop and the starting point is for me that I'm interested in the soul. I'm interested in soul life, in the life of the psyche, what archetypal psychology would refer to as soul making, soul-making as the backdrop of life. And I wonder, a podcast about soul? Is that even possible? After all, one of the things they say about the soul is that it loves to hide. That's helpful. So I'm hoping the soul decides to show up along the way. But it's such a big topic. I mean, it's what Carl Jung spent 18 volumes of his collected works writing about and exploring. It's what James Hillman wrote essay after essay after essay and book after book about and workshop after workshop presented about. It was obviously the topic of his best-selling book, The Soul's Code, the soul, as an animating force in life. But if we stick with Carl Jung, who was born in 1875, and we go to his huge book, Psychological Types, which is volume six of the Collected Works, in that book he has a section called Definitions. And in the Definitions, he clearly says that the primary activity of the soul is imagining. The primary activity of the soul is imagination. It's as easy as that. It's also as complicated as that because there's nothing easy about the imagination. Hillman is quick to say that we live in a time when the imagination is in disarray. We don't even know what it is. So to give you an idea of where I'm coming from when I talk about the imagination, this is the great imagination, the visionary imagination. It's the imagination that emerged in the Romantic era in the late 1700s into the early 1800s and throughout the 19th century. It's the imagination John Ruskin back then was referring to when he said, Strictly speaking, the imagination is never governed. It is always the ruling and divine power. Now, that's something to think about. Imagination as a ruling power. And keep in mind that part that the imagination is never governed. We'll revisit that a little later along the way. And to take this a step further, I was listening to a podcast called the mythic masculine with Ian McKenzie as the host and Ian was interviewing the Irish poet, Alan Cook. And I just love something that Alan said. He said, trust your soul. It knows how to play the long game. And if we go back to Carl Jung and the primary activity of the soul being imagination, I can take what Alan Cook says and understand trust your imagination. And that is a tricky one, but that's what we'll be exploring throughout the episodes of this podcast. What does this have to do with astrology? Well, there's a reason we can talk about the soul and imagination and Carl Jung and then add in astrology. There's a reason all of these things can be packaged together. It's thanks to the exquisite research of Liz Green, the astrologer and Jungian analyst, that we now know astrology was a foundational piece for Jung in developing his psychology. It wasn't the only foundational piece, but it was a major one. For all intents and purposes, jung was an astrologer this is why for example his four main psychological types align so well with say the four elements the dynamic of thinking lines up with air the dynamic of feeling lines up with water the dynamic of sensation lines up with earth and intuition aligns with fire. Jung paid attention to what was going on in the psyches of his patients, what was going on in the sky, and what was going on in the birth charts he had. And he started to notice the connections. He was contemplating astrology as he was developing his psychology. It wasn't a secret. it sprinkled throughout the collected works, but he also didn't make a big deal about it. back in his day, back in, he was born in 1875, he kept it quiet because he wanted to appeal to the spirit of the times, which was science. As psychology was emerging, he wanted it to be taken seriously as a science. And if that was the case, you didn't talk too much about astrology back then. So, this too we will explore in this podcast. Now, before getting into today's topic, there's another factor to consider here, and that is The Red Book by Carl Jung. Jung began writing this in late 1913 at a time of crisis in his life, and it wasn't published until October 19th, 2009 incidentally, under a Jupiter-Chiron-Neptune conjunction in the sign of Aquarius. But Jung found himself in crisis, where he felt he had lost connection with his soul. And it's kind of important as a psychologist to stay connected to the psyche. Jung had been going about his life, developing psychology, befriending Sigmund Freud and unfriending Sigmund Freud, getting his own works published. And then he hit a wall. He felt like he had lost connection with his soul. So what did he do? He decided every night to spend time reestablishing that connection. So night after night after night for weeks and months, Jung spent time doing what? Paying attention to his imagination. It's what he would call active imagination. What was his imagination up to? He would write this down and describe all of the events of his imagination. And through this, he did reestablish connection with his soul. It took his soul 25 days to show up. It took that much dedication for it to show up, but it changed Jung's life. And from that point on, he went on to write Psychological Types, the book I mentioned earlier, as well as the rest of the collected works. Now, I'll talk much more about the Red Book in a future episode of the podcast, but I bring it up now to talk about a distinction that Jung makes early on in the book. He differentiates between the spirit of the times and the spirit of the depths. Now, the spirit of the times, you might align with the ego, your ego identity. What's your name? What's your address? What color is your hair? What color are your eyes? What's your blood type? What's your job? What are you up to now in these times in this life? The spirit of the times is in the New York Times, the London Times, the Financial Times, the Los Angeles Times. It's right there in the titles. It's what's going on now in the zeitgeist. Now, Jung contrasts this with the spirit of the depths which if the spirit of the times is connected with the ego, the spirit of the depths connects you with the soul. You enter that timeless realm, not bound by time, not bound by the spirit of the times, where if you let your soul go left to its own devices, your imagination left to its own devices to roam, where does it go? There is no timeline in the psyche, so you're not bound by any timeline. This is the spirit of the depths, the homeland of the imagination, the archetypal realm. Now, Jung had gotten too caught up in the spirit of the times, at the expense of the spirit of the depths and at the expense of the connection with his own soul. That's why this is important. It's very easy to get caught up in the spirit of the times. And we'll talk more about that a little later, but once you're connected to that deep realm of the imagination, Like I said earlier, the great imagination or the visionary imagination, this is also the deep imagination or the imagination of the depths. Once we're connected there, the forces in the soul come to life. We begin to reimagine life. For example, take the figures of fate and fortune. In the spirit of the times, we tend to talk about fate as a limiting factor from which we move on to embrace our greater destiny. Arguments about fate and free will become very important. Fortune gets talked about, for example, as privilege, or it becomes a game show, spinning the wheel of fortune and buying vowels, But when we're connected to the spirit of the depths, when we're connected to the deep imagination, from that vantage point, we begin to recognize fate and fortune as living forces of the soul. In ancient Greece, the fates were imagined as three feminine figures, one of them spinning the threads of life. Another weaving all of the threads together into a tapestry, into the weave of the world in which we all live our lives. And then the sister who cut the threads when it was time. And fortune was imagined as the goddess Fortuna spinning the great wheel of fortune. Now, interestingly, in the Spirit of the Times in 1930, this goddess was featured on the cover of Fortune magazine with the backdrop of the signs of the Zodiac aligned on the Great Wheel. The Wheel of the Zodiac, the circle of animals, as the Great Wheel of Fortune. Of course, this would have been after the great stock market crash of 1929, heading into the Great Depression. Fortunes on the rise, fortunes on the fall. It keeps spinning. Now, I've been thinking a lot lately about Agatha Christie. I watched a documentary about her life that really got me going with this idea of fate and fortune. Because Agatha Christie was born into a family of great fortune, of great wealth. But when she was 11, the family lost their fortune. So young Agatha couldn't keep doing the things that she had been doing for fun, which cost a lot of money. So what did she decide to do? She decided to start writing. And it was very inexpensive. Not too long after that, her father passed away, and then World War I swept in to change the world. Young Agatha was brought in as a nurse in the hospital, having to deal with the effects of violence and warfare, the likes of which no one had seen and nobody probably really wanted to deal with that kind of violence. But she stayed And eventually got hired into the hospital's dispensary, where she started to learn about medicine. And she started to learn about pharmacology, where she learned about poisons, which of course would become major factors in the books she would write for the rest of her life. So in a way, looking at this chain of events, it's as if bad fortune set Agatha Christie on her path. I find that fascinating. And I think when the spirit of the depths are aligned into the spirit of the times, it's like when Barry Gibb of the Bee Gees talks about living in Florida and one day driving over a bridge and the way the wheels tracked with the road and the clickety clack, clickety-clack of the wheels crossing over the bridge became the rhythm track, the inspiration for the rhythm track. And I forget if it was Saturday Night Fever or Tragedy, one of those songs, one of the biggest songs of all time from one of the biggest movies of its time, Saturday Night Fever. That's, a, that's living in a world alive with fate and fortune and with the soul. Now, going back to Jung, he makes this distinction because he realized that being too caught up in the spirit of the times was how he lost connection with his soul, with the spirit of the depths. He didn't even realize they were there. But once he reestablished the connection, he never wanted to lose it again. So that's what this podcast is about as well. Life from that perspective. Where the soul knows more about our lives than we do. It knows the whole story of which we are only living a part at any given time. This is what Alan Cook is talking about, I believe, when he says, Trust your soul, it knows how to play the long game. So we're getting closer to the topic of today's show, the old man and the Seagoat, but first a story of sorts. So recently I purchased the 2022 remastered version of Tina Turner's album, Break Every Rule. This is one of my favorite albums. Couldn't wait for the remastered version. It sounds terrific. And I was getting on the treadmill one day and the treadmill is an interesting way to talk about the spirit of the times and the spirit of the depths. Because when I am in the spirit of the times and I'm thinking about going on the treadmill, I am like, ugh, I don't want to do it. But once I get on and I put on my headphones and I'm listening to break every rule. What's nice about the treadmill in the spirit of the times is that my options are limited when I'm on it. Pretty much the most important thing is that I have to pay just enough attention to not fall off the thing. My options are limited. I'm basically moving in place and there's a dashboard in front of me with a bunch of numbers. What's a guy to do? So I put on my headphones And I'm listening to, say, Break Every Rule, the 2022 remastered version. And I'm listening to songs that I've been listening to for years. Now they sound so much better. And as I'm moving on the treadmill, it starts to open up the spirit of the depths. I'm free to roam. And listening to Break Every Rule, particularly the title track, I remember going to Germany at this time in the late 80s. I went with a group from school, and I forget where we landed, but we had to take a bus from the airport down to southern Bavaria. For miles and miles and miles, I sat on this bus with my headphones on, listening to Tina Turner and looking out at the mile after mile after mile of the black forest on both sides of the highway. It was beautiful and captivating. And one day on this trip, another bus ride meant we were heading up to the capital of Bavaria, Munich. It wasn't supposed to be a super long bus ride, especially because we were on the Autobahn. And maybe there was a speed limit or maybe there wasn't. But if there was, it was much, much, much higher than speed limits are on the highway in the U.S. Cars were traveling fast. And that day, we ended up in a 200-car pileup on the Autobahn. Well, the bus wasn't in the pileup. We just got caught in the traffic that was backed up for miles and miles and miles for hours and hours and hours. Helicopters are flying in and out. It's very dramatic. And we weren't moving. They eventually had to turn the entire highway system around to get traffic moving again. So here I am on the treadmill, listening to Tina Turner, thinking back to the story in Germany, because the music was evoking that time, a time that I entered as if into a dreamland after the hours spent looking at the black forest sweeping past. I didn't know a thing about astrology back then. I didn't even know my sun sign. I didn't learn that until years later. But now on the treadmill, I realized that that time period was very close to the start of the Saturn-Uranus cycle that began when Saturn and Uranus were conjunct in the sign of Sagittarius. And I was thinking how interesting it was that an album at that time of the Saturn-Uranus conjunction was called Break Every Rule. And then it got me thinking of the very recent Saturn-Pluto conjunction in the sign of Capricorn. And I went, oh, wow. And I realized, because That conjunction on January 12th, 2020, Saturn and Pluto conjunct in the sign of Capricorn is for all intents and purposes, the astrological start of the COVID-19 pandemic. And I realized how similar what I experienced in the late 1980s was to what happened at the start of the pandemic. It was as if a world Moving so fast and had to stop suddenly was like a great pile up that affected the supply chain, that affected the financial markets, that affected the grocery stores, that affected everything, all of our lives. Everything moving so fast had to suddenly stop. And here we are today. And I don't know what it was like for you, but that time at the start of the pandemic, I was a bit scared, probably like everybody else, but I was also in a bit of awe at how suddenly we were all so close to the unknown, who knew what was going to happen a minute from now, let alone two days from now, let alone six months. We were so intimately close to the unknown. Incidentally, that was when I started to take my first real deep dive into the Red Book. But I was also reading a book at the time called Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. So while I was amazed at how quickly and how expansively the world could change so quickly, Station Eleven shows shows a similar event except happening much faster with far more dire consequences. But there's a line in the book that made me think of the Saturn-Pluto conjunction in Capricorn. She writes, Time had been reset by catastrophe. And living so close to mysteries, living so close at the time into the spirit of the depths, entering the timelessness of that kind of life, the line in the book resonated with me very powerfully. And it's on that note that I want to enter today's topic the old man and the seagoat, or Pluto in late degrees of Capricorn. Now, if I look at the astrology of 2023, there's a lot going on, but what particularly stands out is the month of March. And if I imagine the astrological year musically, for example, one month might be a little sonata, another month might be a quartet, another month might be a waltz. But if we look at March, it's the great Beethoven symphony of 2023. It's a dramatic month in the stars. Now, how this shows up really remains to be seen as I'm recording this before the planets move. But on March 7th, we have Saturn entering Pisces. And on March 23rd, we have Pluto entering into Aquarius. So right now, Pluto is in the late degrees of Capricorn, which is something none of us have ever experienced before in our lives. A number of us know about Saturn in Pisces because we've lived it or we were born with Saturn in Pisces. But no one alive right now has Pluto in Aquarius or Pluto in late degrees of Capricorn. And of course, the power of that realization loses its effect when we realize that Pluto in any degree of any sign is new in our lives because Pluto's orbit is so long, 248 years that anything Pluto does really is a -a once-in-a-lifetime affair. But it's important to recognize that unlike Mars in Gemini or Venus in Pisces, Pluto in the late degrees of Capricorn is new to all of us. In the spirit of the times, we've never experienced this before. I wonder, though, in the spirit of the depths, the soul has been through this before. 248 years ago. But how to approach this topic, how to talk about this. I love to talk about the outer planets, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto. They are the initiators of modern astrology. Before then, Saturn was the edge. Saturn was the outer limit. But once the telescope was discovered, we could look into the sky and see more and see further. And this is when Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto showed up. Now, this makes me think of something that Liz Green said. She said, we cannot see the outer planets without the aid of telescopes. And on an inner level, we cannot make direct contact with them without the aid of images, without the aid of imagination. The outer planets hook us into the imagination when we're willing to go there so that's the approach i take it's not all about images but they're the major factor with looking at this so to talk about pluto in late degrees capricorn i first want to take a step back take a step way back not talking about astrology again but like I said, I read. I listen to things a lot. I pay attention to things. I follow popular culture. And one day I was listening to a, a talk from Azar Nafisi. Now, she's the author of Reading Lolita in Tehran, as well as The Republic of Imagination, and her most recent book, Read Dangerously The Subversive Power of Literature in Troubled Times. But this was a few years ago. I was listening to a talk she was giving on promoting the Republic of Imagination. She was talking about why she calls it the Republic of Imagination. She was talking about the state of the world and the state of culture and the troubles we were finding ourselves in. And when she began to describe the crisis, she caught my attention. This is what she said. And the crisis that we are um, confronted today, is not simply an economic or a political crisis. It is, in fact, a crisis of vision. And when she said, it is in fact a crisis of vision, that went up on my wall. See, this is how I work. I kind of imagine myself a lot of times like one of those detectives in the Scandi Noir television shows or the Nordic noir shows like Deadwind or Border Town or The Bridge, maybe even a little bit of Broadchurch in there. But what that detective does is once they're on a case, and I'm kind of always on a case, I'm always on many cases. But once they're on a case, the first thing they do is put evidence up on the wall. They pin a picture of the victim up on the wall. They put a key piece of evidence up on the wall. And as the investigation gets deeper into things, up goes something else, up goes another piece over here, over there goes another photo, up there goes a map. And pieces shift around as connections are made, threads get tied together. And then what the detective does quite often is they sit and they stare They just stare at the wall, looking at the evidence. And somehow in that act of staring, in that act of reflecting, in that act of imagining, they see something, they make a connection that they hadn't made before. A connection that couldn't be made, most likely, if they weren't just sitting and staring. So I'm like that quite a bit as I explore astrology and I, and I explore culture. And I should say just for the record that when I say culture, for the most part, I'm talking about culture as viewed in Western culture from the vantage point of Minneapolis, Minnesota. But once we get into the spirit of the depths, I am one of those Scandi Noir detectives up in Finland or Norway or Sweden on the bridge between Malmo and Copenhagen. Part of that's my ancestry, so it's partly where I'm inclined to go in the spirit of the depths, but it's also just what works for me. So up this quote went on my wall. The crisis that we are confronted with today is not simply an economic or political crisis, it is in fact a crisis of vision. Now, as I put quotes evidence up on the wall, as I make certain connections, one of the things that I added up there is from FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the 32nd president of the United States, who was born in 1882. So in between Carl Jung being born and Agatha Christie being born, we have Franklin Delano Roosevelt. See, I like being able to talk archetypally because we can look at somebody like FDR, not necessarily from a political lens, but through an archetypal lens, where it doesn't matter if he's Democrat or Republican or whatever. What is the archetypal nature of this person? Now, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was a visionary. He was president From 1933 to 1945, which means he won four presidential elections in a row. The first to ever do that, and the last to ever do that. And we're gonna listen to a short quote from a speech of his that he gave on June 27th, 1936, which incidentally, Saturn at that time was at 22 degrees of Pisces, 30 minutes. So we're deep into the Great Depression. We're deep into the dirt of the Dust Bowl. And Franklin Delano Roosevelt addresses an audience with this.
1: There is a mysterious cycle in human events. To some generations, much is given. Of other generations, much is expected. This generation of Americans has a rendezvous with destiny.
0: So I wanted to play that because in those 30 seconds, he packs so much. He refers to a mysterious cycle in human events a politician referring to a mysterious cycle in human events. He opens it up to the generations. And when he says this generation of Americans has a rendezvous with destiny, he's using visionary language. It's the same kind of language that Abraham Lincoln used when he referred to the better angels of our nature, or he referred to the mystic chords of memory. And to be honest, I can't think of a single leader today who speaks like this. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was connected to the spirit of the depths. He was a president with imagination. Without going too much into his astrology, he was born with a Jupiter-Saturn-Neptune conjunction in the sign of Taurus with pluto further down the way in Taurus. He was also born with a cancer moon. So he was well-equipped archetypally and imaginatively with Taurus being a money sign and an agricultural sign to lead during a great financial crisis and ecological crisis in the 1930s. Not to mention providing emotional security during a time of enormous emotional insecurity. And he did it all with polio. He couldn't walk. Now, archetypally, this is where I've heard Carolyn Mace talk about the fact that at the start of the Great Depression, the language in the newspapers was that the country, the United States, was economically crippled. And here we elected a president with polio. And then as the Great Depression began to ease, the language in the news, in the spirit of the times, connected to the spirit of the depths, was that the country was back on its feet again. This is the power of the archetypal perspective. So FDR went up on my wall. And then I was watching a TV show. I was watching a really interesting, really fascinating show a well-done show called Rectify. It's about a young man who went to prison for murder and ended up on death row for the crime he committed. But 18 years later, he was released from prison, exonerated when new evidence came to light. So out he goes after 18 years of living in a tiny concrete prison cell out into the great wide world. And as I was watching the show, moving through the episodes, in the same way that Azar Nafisi's statement about a crisis of vision caught me, this man released from prison and living in the wide world for just a few days said to his mother, I think I need glasses. So he goes to the eye doctor. And the eye doctor gives him a diagnosis and says, well, it's mild, the nearsightedness. There's a thing called near work myopia. The muscles lock into near focus from prolonged use at closer distances or from lack of use at longer distances. So imagine living in a tiny prison cell concrete walls talk about prolonged use at closer distances and then getting out into the world again how does it look after 18 years so his vision diagnosis went up on the wall and now we move into an article that I wrote that was published in a recent issue of the mountain astrologer happens to be the Capricorn issue Of 2022, the Winter Solstice issue. It's issue number 224. And the article I wrote is called Pluto in Aquarius When the Center Cannot Hold. Now you can find this issue to purchase on MountainAstrologer.com. You can buy the digital copy of the issue, or you can buy the physical copy of the issue, or you can buy both or you can subscribe to The Mountain Astrologer digitally or physically or both. I recommend any and all of the above. But it's in issue 224 that you can find this article, Pluto in Aquarius, When the Center Cannot Hold. Now, the article is about Pluto in Aquarius, but what I do at the beginning of the article is talk about where we are at before Pluto moves into Aquarius, where we are at essentially on the eve of Pluto moving into Aquarius after first moving into Capricorn in 2008. It's been a while. Pluto's slow move through Capricorn. So what I want to do now is read a section from the article. It's a long article. So this is just a one section from the beginning. And this is called zeitgeist. This is the hour of lead. Pluto's shift from Capricorn into Aquarius is a massive archetypal shift that may or may not be felt immediately. In his book, Revisioning Psychology, depth psychologist James Hillman described archetypes this way. Let us imagine archetypes as the deepest patterns of psychic functioning, the roots of the soul governing the perspectives we have of ourselves and the world. End quote. Pluto works in the invisible depths, the depths of the psyche, the roots of the soul, whether that is the soul of a person or a culture. Archetypes reveal themselves in persistent images and through the imagination that shows up in a person's life or throughout a culture. As we near Pluto's shift from Capricorn into Aquarius, what do we see in the zeitgeist, in the spirit of the times, which speaks to the archetypal nature of Capricorn? The following list begins to answer that question. So in the article, I have a list of nine things in Capricorn style. I had to do a list, an itemized numbered list, but you're going to hear 10 things with the 10th thing being something that occurred after the article was written and published. So what do we see in the zeitgeist in the spirit of the times, which speaks to the archetypal nature of Capricorn? One. One. On January 20th, 2021, Joe Biden became the oldest sitting president of the United States at age 78. Two. On April 23rd, 2021, at age 80, Sir Tom Jones released his 41st album, Surrounded by Time, which debuted at number one in the UK making Jones the oldest male singer to earn a number one album in that country. The album features the song, I'm Growing Old. On April 25th, 2021, at the 94th Academy Awards, Sir Anthony Hopkins, at age 83, became the oldest actor to win Best Actor for his role in The Father. Note the title. 4. At that same ceremony, the best picture was awarded to Nomad Land, a movie depicting older Americans who, in the wake of the economic recession from 2007 to 2009 Remember, Pluto entered Capricorn in 2008, began traveling around the country in search of seasonal work. 5. On July 19th, 2021, director M. Night Shyamalan released his 14th film simply called Old. Six. On September 26th, 2021, at the 74th Annual Tony Awards, Lois Smith became the oldest person to win a Tony Award for acting when she was awarded best performance by a featured actress in a play at age 90 for her role in The Inheritance. 7. On October 13, 2021, also at the age of 90, William Shatner became the oldest person to fly into space. On June 3, 2022, the New York Times published an article entitled why are we still governed by baby boomers and the remarkably old? Nine, on June 16th, 2022, a television show called The Old Man premiered in the U.S. to positive reviews. Ten, on 8th of September, 2022, Prince Charles became Charles III Third king of the United Kingdom at age 73, the oldest person to accede to the British throne. The theme clearly emerges. Woven throughout the culture, we see the old man, old age, the father figure, the senex. We are, like Tom Jones, surrounded by time which is to say we are surrounded by Saturn, the ruler of Capricorn. Saturn rules over aging, mortality, time, and the limits of our human lives. Saturn represents the governmental structures that hold society together. Saturn governs what we typically think of as cold, hard reality, real reality. If we go back to Hillman's understanding of archetypes as the roots of the soul governing the perspectives we have of ourselves and the world, and we hear again the question posed in the New York Times, why are we still governed by the remarkably old, we now hear an archetypal question we can begin to see how profoundly domineering Saturn's rule is over our ways of life as a culture. He is currently the authoritarian governing our perspectives. So there's another list in the article, and I won't read the whole thing, but I wanted to point out that Saturn shows himself yet again as a significant figure looming in the backdrop of our culture via the presence of walls and prisons. So this is where re- that scene from Rectify fits into things. But interestingly enough, here are three more items. One, at the Tony Awards on June 9th, 2019, Hadestown won the award for Best Musical. The show, Ten Years in the Making, ends Act One with the remarkable and stunning song, Why We Build the Wall, sings Hades, Pluto's Greek counterpart, We Build the Wall to Keep Us Free. Next, a wall featured prominently in the global television phenomenon, Game of Thrones, a massive wall, this one built between the living and the dead. And In her Netflix documentary, 13th, released on September 30th, 2016, Ava DuVernay includes a chart showing the U.S. prison population numbers from 1970, when the prison population was 357,292, to the present U.S. prison population, which is around 2.5 million. The chart shows the numbers begin to skyrocket around 2008, when Pluto first entered Capricorn. Now, to add one more thing that isn't in the article, I want to read a very short passage from one of my favorite authors, Olga Tokarczuk, the Nobel laureate of 2018. This is from her book, Drive Your Plow, Over the Bones of the Dead. It's a book that was first published in Poland in 2009. Then it was translated into English and published in the U.S. on 13th of August, 2019. So we're still in the Pluto and Capricorn era. Now, her main character is an elderly woman who says, I grew up in a beautiful era now sadly in the past. In it, there was great readiness for change and a talent for creating revolutionary visions. Nowadays, no one still has the courage to think up anything new. All they ever talk about round the clock is how things already are. They just keep rolling out the same old ideas reality has grown old and gone senile. After all, it is definitely subject to the same laws as every living organism. It ages. So to me, this all starts to put together a really significant picture of Pluto in the late degrees of Capricorn. Now, to see where I go with this in the article to head into Pluto and Aquarius and to read about thoughts about Pluto and Aquarius, you can read the entire article, which you can find, like I said, in The Mountain Astrologer, issue 224, or at the launch of this podcast, you can find the article published on astro.com, and it's the top article on the front page Pluto in Aquarius, When the Center Cannot Hold, by Sean Nygaard. Now, if you discover this podcast five years down the line, you may have to dig a little deeper into astro.com to find it, but it should be pretty accessible for quite a while. And I have to give a little shout out to my friend Adam Ellenboss over at Nightlight Astrology. Because we went to lunch one day, and I was talking about Pluto and Aquarius in this way. And he actually encouraged me to put it together in a webinar, which I presented in one of his speaker series at Nightlight Astrology. So thank you, Adam. Now, all of this leads me to want to say a little bit more about the planet Saturn. Capricorn is ruled by Saturn, but so is Aquarius. So Pluto is moving from one Saturn world sign into another. So even though the nature of Capricorn and Aquarius are very different, Saturn is still looming there in the background. And one of the main reasons I wanted to start talking about this and writing about it in the article is because Pluto and Aquarius will be asking us to bring something new to the table. It wants fresh air. It wants new ideas. It wants invention and it wants innovation. So how do we move from from a culture in which old has such a hold into something new? Well, first, it's important to say that that list of items of old, focusing on old, It can be looked at literally, but more importantly, is that this is what's going on in the spirit of the depths. This is where Saturn has the hold on things, which means I'm not actually talking about old people. I'm talking about the archetype of old. And when it's an archetype, it can affect anybody of any age, anywhere. You can be 16 and talking about health issues of like a 90-year-old. And I think this plays into the vision crisis that Azar Nafisi was talking about. Not just how age can definitely affect vision. It can affect the vision of a culture archetypally. The culture needs glasses. So when Saturn is dominant in the psyche... What are the qualities of Saturn that we can notice? What are the qualities of Saturn that come into play? One of the most prominent, of course, is that Saturn is risk-averse. Saturn is the great conservative in the solar system. And he often insists on things being practical. Real-world practicality. I think the Saturn hold is what's behind the need to remake animated Disney movies into reality or live action versions of the same story. Make it real, make it real. But Saturn's conservative nature has also created pretty much a get off my lawn kind of a culture. See Saturn's reality is limits and boundaries. It's why Saturn rules prisons. And Saturn's nature can get very confusing because four walls can be a haven of safety and they can also be a prison. And when Saturn's lens becomes the dominant lens, it's like life can get reduced to its limits. Life gets brought to its bare bones. And like I said, you can be 16 and dealing with physical issues like an elderly person. You can be 35 and dealing with things that feel like old age issues. It's what's going on in the psyche. In a way, Saturn is like the ultimate helicopter parent. Carefully, carefully watching over things. Be careful, be careful. And I like Saturn's connection with the word sated. Sated because things are sated when they have reached a limit. It's like you're eating dinner. You're really enjoying the food. You keep eating. You have a couple glasses of wine. You eat some more and you are full. You are stuffed. You can't eat another bite. You have reached a limit. You are sated and you are satisfied. You sit back and let the digesting begin. You've stopped what you were doing to let the next stage of the process happen. And seeing this hold that old has on the culture, it's like the culture reaching a profound limit, a profound stopping point, which we might mark by the Saturn-Pluto conjunction in Capricorn in January of 2020. And I look around, and it's as if nobody is satisfied. We've reached that limit, but is anybody really sated? I wonder. And it makes me think of a story from Garth Greenwell from his book called Cleanness, which strangely enough came out at the beginning of the pandemic when everybody was using hand sanitizers and cleaners to wipe off the counters and wipe off the groceries and wipe everything off and keep everything clean. Here's this book published called cleanness and the first story, and it's a collection of short stories. And the first story is called mentor and without spoiling anything in it, the narrator reflects at the end of the story about the things that he's done and the things that he said and the things that he's said as mentor to younger students. And he thinks how much smaller I have become. I've worn myself down to a bearable size. And part of me feels like that's the culture that I see now, especially compared to the culture that I've been watching for decades and following for decades. It seems to have worn itself down to a bearable size that quite frankly has become unbearable. So whatever people's feelings are about Pluto about to move into the sign of Aquarius, this push into something new is a push to open things up, to let in some fresh air. So this brings me, that's the old man. And now I just want to say a little bit about the sea goat, the symbol for Capricorn. Now the sea goat has fascinated me. Because a lot of the talk, especially in the Western culture, about the sign of Capricorn depicts this symbol as the goat climbing to the top of the mountain. I see the images of real goats climbing super steep walls to lick the salt from them. You know, the Pluto's passage through Capricorn or Saturn's passage through Capricorn is a a salty way but that's a goat climbing up and climbing to the top of a mountain. But the original symbol for Capricorn is actually the sea goat or the mer-goat, and it's a creature with the head and body of a goat and the body and tail of a fish. It's a sea creature that lives under the earth in the aquifer, in the reservoir of water under the earth. So being that detective-like, Scandi-noir detective staring at the wall, I have wondered for quite a while how to reconcile this image of a goat climbing to the top that's obviously had the sea creature part of it cut off to make the trip. And it becomes a symbol of ambition, climbing to the top. With this sea goat living in the depths, And what I want to do is give the goat its fishtail back. And when I go back to ancient Mesopotamia and the way they looked out at the stars and imagined into them, they created a story told through the stars over the course of a year. And that story for them begins on what we call the winter solstice. Now, one version of the story of the seagoat itself is that this is the figure of Enki, or the master shaper of the world. And he lives in the fresh water, the oceanic fresh water under the earth. And the symbol of the, the seagoat, which became the sign of Capricorn and aligns with the start of the winter solstice, is the start of the story of the year. This is when the sun in the Northern hemisphere reaches its lowest point. We have the longest night, the shortest day, the deepest darkness, the light is the furthest away. So George R. R. Martin wasn't kidding when he published his first Game of Thrones book and said, winter is coming. Pluto was going to be entering Capricorn eventually. And if we take Capricorn here to be the first sign in the story of the year, the point from which the light begins to rise again, we can see that Sagittarius, or what would become Sagittarius, is the last sign. And back in ancient Mesopotamia, the figure of the centaur was much more complicated, and its bow and arrow was used to herd souls into the underworld and to fend off any demons wanting to capture them on entry. So Sagittarius, as we're heading toward the winter solstice and the last few degrees of Sagittarius were understood to be feral as the gates of the underworld swung open with souls being herded in through the wide open gates. This is the figure of the centaur. And now I find it super interesting that the centaur of Sagittarius and the sea goat of Capricorn are the only two mythic figures in the entire Zodiac. There are myths behind the other figures, but the ram of Aries, the bull of Taurus, the crab of cancer, the lion of Leo, all of the other symbols you can find in the natural world or the human world. And maybe one day one of us will run into a centaur or one of us will go swimming and we'll come across a sea goat, but it hasn't happened yet. But these are the two mythic figures. These are the two imaginary figures in the Zodiac. It's as if to say everything begins in imagination and ends in imagination and begins again in imagination. And then I was wondering about the imagination of this seagoat, how to describe it. And really, what it comes down to is that ruled by Saturn, the imagination of the seagoat is architectural in nature. At the winter solstice, at the outset of the sun beginning to rise again, this is the architecture of the seagoat, who wants to put in place a structure that can hold civilization intact. As a starting point, it imagines a structure that can hold new life as it begins to emerge from the depths. And because this is the watery part of the sky, Capricorn, the seagoat, Aquarius, the water carrier, Pisces, the fish. The move for Capricorn into Aquarius, the water carrier, is this water, this new life, moving upward. Once that structure is in place and life begins to emerge, it's it's as if Aquarius provides new ground, innovation, and invention As a follow-up from Capricorn. So we get structure, we get living into the structure of society, where, oh, I think we need to change things up. We've hit a limit. We need to grow past this. We need a new structure. We need a new idea to take us a step further. And then in Pisces, the water sign of the fish, it opens it up to all the potential of the imagination where anything is possible, where we begin to follow the dream, ready to emerge into the world in the spring, in the sign of Aries. So in a sense, if Pluto in Capricorn has brought us walls and limits and a crisis of vision, Pluto in Aquarius wants us to go beyond the wall. I think just now of that movie Maze Runner. With its huge walls as a maze that the main characters are trying to get through the maze, get through the labyrinth, to get to the other side out of this confined space. The move into Aquarius is the move into that more open space. So, on that note, I want to just quickly look ahead because it's not just Pluto's move into Aquarius coming in March, it's Saturn's move. From Aquarius into Pisces. Now, just because planets are changing doesn't guarantee anything. But one thing I note is a likely change of tone that becomes possible when Pluto moves out of Capricorn and Saturn moves into Pisces, where Neptune has been traveling for quite a while now. And when I talk about Neptune, and in particular Neptune in Pisces, I call it Neptune's Immensities. This is the Immensities of the ocean. Neptune is the god of the ocean, the god of the sea. So when planets have been moving through the sign of Capricorn, Capricorn is ruled by Saturn, and the planet Mars is exalted in Capricorn. And these two planets in traditional astrology are called the Malefics. Now, when Saturn moves into Pisces, where Neptune is already, Pisces is a sign ruled by Jupiter. And Venus is the planet exalted in the sign of Pisces. And in traditional astrology, these are known as the Benefics. So even though it's Saturn we're talking about, Saturn moving into the immense sign of Pisces that makes me think of Toni Morrison, who was born with the sun in Aquarius and a Pisces moon. She said on Oprah, life is big. What a contrast to I've worn myself down to a bearable size. And Toni Morrison was born with Saturn In Capricorn, conjunct Venus in Capricorn, tightly opposite Pluto. So she knew a thing or two about limits. But being born with those, the Capricorn, Aquarius, Pisces planets, very strong, she used those limits to hold the new life that was emerging through her novels and through her literature, through her imagination. But my point is, there's a change of tone when Capricorn has been a dominant part of the story for many, many, many years. It can obscure the immensities of Pisces, and it can obscure the benefic part that comes along with planets moving through the sign of Pisces. And the move into Pisces makes me think of, for example, the spirit of generosity, But Capricorn times can make the spirit of generosity seem almost naive. But it's important to note in myth, Jupiter was not swallowed by Saturn. So Jupiter wasn't buying any of what Saturn was selling. Which is why I bring up this idea of the change of tone when Pisces becomes much stronger, even when it's Saturn, is that it can be a switch from a get off my lawn culture to more of a spirit of generosity and the start of a new kind of openness, the start of a willingness to follow a dream, which is what we'll talk about in one of the next coming up episodes, focusing on Saturn in Pisces, a hint of which we get, and it's actually more than a hint is that Jim Henson was born with Saturn in Pisces. And one of those formative movies from my childhood was the Muppet movie. So instead of talking about the old man surrounded by time, I'm growing old. I need glasses. The shift from Capricorn to Pisces, by which I mean, when Pluto moves into Aquarius, Capricorn is no longer a dominant part of the story. It'll it'll be a there for a couple of years as as pluto goes retrograde before finally moving into aquarius for the long haul but the role that capricorn plays in the story of the culture is gonna switch and it would be really nice to see talk of the old man switch to something more like a frog in a swamp with a dream singing about the lovers the dreamers and me A frog who decides to pursue his dream, follow his soul, and encounter the mysteries along the way, encounter fate as a living part of the story. So he meets the people he needs to meet along the way. It's a story, it's a movie, it's a vision of the roles that fate and fortune play in our lives and keep the mystery alive. So it's on that note with a movie that I want to move into the final section of today's episode. It's time for movies and archetypes. Now, when I say this podcast is about astrology and archetypes, I love being able to talk about archetypes without having to talk about astrology. I love them both. So watching movies, they tell archetypal stories of their own. And just one example of this, how this works, and this one happens to align with astrology quite powerfully, is if you look at the chart of Suzanne Collins, who was born in 1962, she was born with Saturn and the south node together in the sign of Aquarius. Saturn in Aquarius, south node in Aquarius. She's also a Leo sun and you may know her as the author of a series of books called the hunger games. Now, if you read my article about Pluto and Aquarius, you hear me discuss the sign of Aquarius more, the nature of Aquarius, but just a quickie outline of one aspect of Aquarius. If we look at the Leo and Aquarius axis, we know that Leo is a sign ruled by the sun and the sun is the center of the solar system around which all of the other planets revolve. And if we go back to traditional times, we know that Aquarius is ruled by Saturn and Saturn was the end of the line. There was no telescope that could see past Saturn in traditional times. So Saturn was the edge. Saturn was the outer limits of the solar system. Beyond Saturn, who knows? It was a mystery. But Saturn is the edge. Saturn is the margins. And so the shift from Leo over to Aquarius is a a perspective shift from the center, away from the center, over to the margins. The emphasis becomes on the margins, on the edge. And what's interesting in The Hunger Games, is that Suzanne Collins came up with a character named Katniss Everdeen, who lives in district 12 in Panem. And in Panem, there's the capital. And then there are 12 districts, the 12th of which is the furthest out. It's at the edge, the furthest away from the center. The center is the capital the center referred to in the movies of the Hunger Games, at least as the heartbeat of Panem. So Suzanne Collins came up with this character that lives at the edge. And it just so happens to align quite powerfully with the symbolism in Suzanne Collins' birth chart. Now, did she study astrology? Did she learn her chart and reflect on it and come up with a story that way? Who knows? I don't know. But either way, this is how the imagination works. You can go commando. You don't need to learn your chart. You don't need to learn the planets. You don't need to learn the signs. If you trust your imagination, there's that mysterious way that it ends up reflecting the chart in a very powerful way. But I want to end today's episode with a tribute and not the Hunger Games kind of tribute, a sincere tribute to a great man. His name is Jim Curtin, and he sadly passed away in the spring of 2021. Jim was a visionary and Jim was a colleague of Carolyn Mace who taught at her CMED Institute alongside her. And he was a genius when it came to archetypal vision, sharing that archetypal vision and teaching it. I first met Jim in a recording studio in Chicago at the recording of The Language of Archetypes. And he was just a treat to be around. What he would do at CMED is, after a full day of teaching, Carolyn and Jim and other teachers. Jim would show us a movie at night and he would frequently pause the movie and show us from an archetypal lens, how he was seeing it. And part of his ability to do this was cultivated by the fact that he worked in Hollywood He was a talent manager for a long time in Hollywood and worked with actors. And he understood the way actors playing to their innate archetypal nature was the route to go. And when actors betrayed their archetypal nature, it had an effect not just on the success of movies, but how the audiences reacted to that actor in the movie. And when actors played to their innate, or they play to their innate archetypal nature, that's when the magic happens. So, what I'm going to do is play a short clip from an interview I did with Jim Curtin. Because quite a number of years ago now, I actually had a radio show on the internet called Imagine That. And I interviewed Jim in one episode. And in this clip, we're going to literally pick him up, I think, mid-sentence or at the start of a story he's telling. Maybe the start of a sentence in the middle of a story. But he's talking about, you'll hear it, the way he was looking at certain movies at a certain time and starting to notice things. And I asked Jim about this in the interview because it was one of the first things I ever heard him teach, and I thought it was brilliant. So I wanted to share this with everybody. The clip is about five minutes, so I'm going to end with that clip. So I want to say thank you for listening to the first episode of Imagine That, The Old Man and the Sea Goat. This is Sean Nygard, and you can find me on the web at imagineastrology.com. You can find the article I referenced in issue 224 of The Mountain Astrologer, or you can find it on astro.com, Pluto in Aquarius, when the center cannot hold. Coming up in April, and you can find more information on my website, I have a webinar coming up for the NCGR group in San Diego, where I will talk about Saturn in Pisces and Pluto in Aquarius And I'm calling it dream time and the world to come. And then down the line in November for a group in Australia, more information to come, I'll be doing a workshop on Saturn and Pisces and the relationship between Saturn and Neptune. But for now I'll sign off and I'll leave you with the visionary wonder, Jim Curtin.
1: And at that time, and you know, you know, this part of it very well. Um, I'd been puzzling why the movie Titanic was such a huge success. <laughs> I love this. Because, because I knew, I mean, I, people kept going to see it over and over, and I know it wasn't just for the, for the spectacle of it, you know. <laughs> I, I found, and I'll go back to something else in a minute with John Travolta and people going to see movies over and over. but uh, So I was trying to figure out what Titanic was speaking to that it was touching people in the way that it was. And uh, the love story, but there are lots of love stories, but there was something in the nature of the relationship between the man and the woman. And, and I would think about that, but I, I, didn't, I hadn't figured it out. And then I remember, I, I don't know it was a year or two years later, when, um, uh, oh, help me out, Shakespeare in Love yep. came out. Yep. And I was watching that movie, and I thought, good Lord, this is archetypally and structurally identical to Titanic. And then a year later, I, was going, I went to see Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and I thought, something's going on here about Collective Unconscious because I knew Titanic had been in development for years. And while I was still working in the movies, uh, Shakespeare in Love was supposed to be made at one point with Daniel Day-Lewis and Julia Roberts. <laughs> and I mean, that, that would have been in the early 90s, late 80s even. And, wow. so, and it didn't get made. So it wasn't like these people were all talking to each other, but what I saw in that, and it, it wasn't anything I analyzed. It, it it sort of it was like an aha moment where I just saw right. that those those three movies all had they were all sort of an, a heroine's journey myth, and something people in the film business had been talking about ever since uh, the sixties. Was once Women's Lib came in, it was a whole feminist movement. People didn't know how to write movies about the relationship between men and women. Hmm. Uh, that was the era of Jane Fonda and Jill Clayburgh and Barbara Streisand, you know, The Way We Were and things like that, where they couldn't figure out a way for the man and woman to, to end up together. Hmm. It, just, it just didn't work. <laughs> and so uh, what I saw in these is they were reworking the love story myth in these oh, yeah. movies. And in each one of them, uh, each one of them begins with a woman being treated like property and being sold into a loveless marriage in Titanic. It's by her indigent mother. In Shakespeare and Love, uh, the parents are trading her for a, a title for their grandchild. And in Crouching Tiger, it is for, uh, it's a political alliance. And, and the woman has no choice in <laughs> this. And so she's treated like property in all of them. And, and, and the, men, uh, the men that she meets, uh, that, she, that they set her up with, uh, are very stiff and, and treat her like a possession. They don't treat her really as being fully human. Mm-hmm. And she's almost like an ornament. And, uh, and she's feeling like she doesn't have any, you know, she's stuck. And then she meets a man in each one of them who's not of her class who sees her for what she is. It's Leonardo DiCaprio, Shakespeare, and in Crouching Tiger, it's the bandit. And each of these men, and this is what intrigued me, has a very strongly developed feminine. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. and this is important because uh, if you look in each one of those, at one point the woman initiates the lovemaking. Mm -hmm. And if you look at it, the, the, the men they're supposed to marry are very rigid. And if you look at Leonardo DiCaprio and Shakespeare and the bandit, they have they have long flowing hair. They there's something not feminine about them, but they haven't integrated. They've integrated masculine and feminine. Mm-hmm. Uh in each one of those movies the heroine disguises herself as a man or is taken for a man. For example, on Titanic, when her fiancé is looking for her, she's wearing his coat and he doesn't recognize her because she's in a man's coat. And uh, you know, in Shakespeare in Love she's playing Romeo, not Juliet, and in <laughs> Couching Tiger for the first half of the movie, they don't know whether that's the bandit's a man or a woman. They have no idea. And and each one of them, there's an older woman who's sort of a, you know, Molly Brown, Queen Elizabeth, and, uh, you know, the, the older warrior woman, uh, who guide her toward a, sort of a, each of them, that there's an alternative uh, way to live. And then finally, they all jump into the water for and, you know, rebirth with, or expected to with a new identity. Mm-hmm. And when that hit me, I thought something's going on here. So, something uh so I decided without giving it any thought I would teach Titanic. I said I I just said to the people I'm we're going to skip the spectacle because you I I don't want to ruin this for anybody but the boat sinks. The response was amazing. The response oh, cool. was just uh, astonishing. You know, I and I figured I'd figured out a new way. You know, that's so I started doing that. Then I started picking shorter movies.